0: Recently I began teaching myself the first calculus class offered in my high school, that is AP Calc AB, through Khan Academy. My intent was to skip to, uh, to skip it, basically, skip it, Calc AB, to go straight to AP Calc BC, so I can transition straight to Calc 3 at a local college in my senior year. I'm currently continuing with that ambition, for I wish to be done with everything calculus, including differential equations by the end of high school, because I'll do differential equations on Khan Academy or online. Um, not because, really, because I wish for it to be over, but rather because I wish to be able to understand the intense physics topics that are dominated by calculus, and of course, abstract algebra, but I haven't learned that yet, um, and not to mention, of course, that I love to learn. Uh, If I finish the first three classes of calculus, I will have more space in my schedule, because I care not about cost, for I want to learn as much as I, I can in college, meaning that I can take more unusual, difficult, and incredible math courses. And, of course, this could include classes like differential geometry, numerical analysis, real analysis, and, of course, the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst in math, the abstract algebra. Abstract algebra, the thing that is taught at Math 55, the hardest undergraduate class that exists. It is a math class in which you're basically doing a part-time job and a full-time job just to finish the the practice problems, because they it generally takes 24 to 60 hours a week just to finish the practice problems, because they're crazy. Proof-based mathematics, guys, proof-based mathematics. I know not a single distinguished mathematician or physicist that has considered this class easy, or for that matter, not even exceptionally difficult. Uh, uh, Yes, abstract algebra is widely considered the most difficult math subject that exists. Thus, I, a 16-year-old with even a limited calculus background, will try to teach myself abstract algebra with the intent to communicate it. Of course, though, it is important to understand that I am likely to trip up and butcher some of these abstract algebraic topics, for abstract algebra is indeed the second most difficult math subject, second behind the Hilbert space, I've ever indulged in. Now, that is not correct anymore. Uh, when writing this, this that was before I wrote group theory. Oh, group theory was by far the most difficult thing I've ever had to grasp. It is much more difficult than the Hilbert space. Uh, actually, I kind of understand the Hilbert space, because now I know what an integral is, and now I know what vectors are, and now I know all that crazy stuff. So, it, it's just... I know a lot of new mathematical topics, because I did that in February, and I've learned the entirety of KB. Like, I'm done with Kb now. So... I know all the integrals. I know integrals now. I know what a contour integral is, but that's Calc 3. But um, I know a lot of the more difficult mathematical topics. So the Hilbert space is not that difficult. Like, it was difficult as in I understood it. Like, I could figure it out. It just was very grueling to figure it out. Now, abstract algebra, we got to the point at which I was lost. I mean, in group theory, theory, I I just got lost. At one point, I just completely gave up and I was just like done for the day I went back the next day and worked to understand it thankfully I was able to figure it out Um, but we're gonna be going to calculus after these two episodes because again this one just another disclaimer is this one's going to be a two-part a two-part episode because yeah there are a lot of structures in abstract algebra that's why I had to include a very short history of abstract algebra because group theory is very dense ring theory is very dense uh, there is a lot of math in this in this episode in these two episodes. Now the first episode will be completely on group theory, and the second episode will be on ring theory, fields, vector spaces, lattices, algebras, and all that. But anyway, or and also Galois theory. But we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to all this. Uh, but anyway, also we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be doing more basic stuff after this because. I need a I need a good physics background. I, I think we were going we were going for that goal for a while now, but I think I just got caught up again because then I started doing abstract algebra and dark dark matter, dark energy is pretty easy, but but abstract algebra is not easy and you kinda have to have a linear algebra background and I've only done like ten percent of linear algebra, so there's a long way to go, I guess. But anyway, abstract algebra began through problems, as do most mathematical and scientific phenomena. In the late 19th century, many of these problems involved algebraic systems. These included systems of linear equations, so like the solving of these systems led to basically the genesis of linear algebra, linear equations, linear, linear, that's the key word. Uh, The work finding formulas to solve general polynomial equations um, these also these efforts led to the discovery of groups as abstract manifestations of symmetry, uh, but they also helped us figure out what the maximum the maximum degree of a polynomial that we can actually solve through equations. And we learned this we actually know this through Galois theory because the basically it, it, the the solvability of a polynomial depends on the ability of its of the permutation group of its roots to be solvable that's essentially what it means so a fifth degree polynomial the permutation group the Galois group of its of its roots is not solvable thus the you cannot there's no equation that solves that solves x to the fifth power minus one for example you can get x to the third power minus one it's we know how to do that um, but you can't quite get x to the uh, fifth power or any higher x to the sixth power for that matter um, and then also there's the work investigating quadratic and higher degree terms and then of course these efforts led to the production of two other abstract algebraic phenomena Those are rings and ideals. Ideals are subsets of a ring's elements. We will get into rings later in the next episode, in the beginning of the next episode. These developments, specifically the development of group theory, led to the emergence of abstract algebra in what was called modern algebra in the early 20th century. Mathematicians studied and developed abstract algebra in order to provide more intellectual rigor, as they said, to algebra. Before abstract algebra's development, classical algebra took the form of axiomatic systems, which are essentially sets of axioms, elements which are simply assumed to be true, that can be used to derive theorems. Mathematicians look toward general theories of mathematics rather than the established properties of concrete objects. Now, that's what they're doing now. So they're not essentially, they're basically trying to make it pure proof-based mathematics. Uh, Basic structures of algebra, such as groups, rings, and fields, had formal definitions that existed through crude operations and axioms, but they did not have concrete theories or operations. As a result, theories like group theory and ring theory arose in attempts to explain mathematical phenomena through pure mathematics, meaning that it is explained only through math, independent of any applications outside of math. The main figures behind the establishment of abstract algebra, some of whom may be mentioned later in the chapter, include Ernst Steinitz, David Hilbert, the discoverer of the Hilbert space, or the creator of the Hilbert space, Emil Artin, I may be butchering some of these names, Emmy Noter, I thought it was Nether, but it's Noter, uh, her last name is apparently pronounced Noter, though. Uh, but she was responsible for Noter's theorem, the theorem responsible for all existing conservation laws. They existed before then, but so. Uh, but she's generally considered the mother of abstract algebra, so, like, basically the founder of it. Um, also, Ernst Kummer, or Kummer, Kummer, uh, Leopold Kronecker, and Richard Dedekind. There were other ones that came later on. An example would include John von Neumann, arguably the greatest mathematician and arguably the greatest mind in human history, but of course there were, there were others, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, of course, but yeah, and anyways, let's go to group theory. First and foremost is, of course, group theory, the theory of algebraic systems known as groups. Now I watched a 3 blue run brown video. If you guys know that YouTube channel, that is a mathematical YouTube channel that gets into exceptionally difficult mathematical concepts and th- this video was on abstraction and group theory. Specifically a monster that has 196,883 dimensions. We will get that into that later in the episode. But yeah, that's essentially what it is and it kind of inspired me to learn more about group theory, so that's basically what's behind this episode, is the fact that 3 Blue, Run, Brown made such an interesting video about group theory and abstraction, as he called it. Groups are essentially sets. Sets are collections of distinct elements consisting. An element is essentially a member of a set. It could be a number, a complex number. It could be any number. It could be a rational number, a complex number. It could be a It could just be a real number, it could be an integer, integer, real number, but yeah. Uh, And these are, these sets are collections of distinct elements consisting of operations that combine two elements to form a third element. That's essentially what it is binary operations, groups are associative, meaning that the rearrangement of parentheses in this expression will not alter its answer. And groups have what are known as identity elements, which are elements that leave an element unchanged when combined with any of the elements in a set. So 6 plus 0 equals 6. That 0 would be the identity element. Now this can apply to multiplication, where the identity element would be 1, it's a multiplicative identity element, and this also could be just additive additive identity element, which would be zero. Now they also have what is known as inverse elements. These are elements that generalize the concepts of sign reversal, so like plus versus minus, so positive six plus negative six is zero, and reciprocation, so like 86 times one eighty-sixth is one. There exist numerous groups that are not only important in mathematics and physics, but also in everyday life. Some groups I can think of include lie groups, including the unitary group and the special unitary group, which we probably discussed in like seven episodes before this. Uh, the Poincari group, and of course the Rubik's Cube group. It has a It's a group with 43 quintillion permutations. Yeah. Yeah. Some groups, or a group whose elements are all powers of a particular element, are some examples of groups that are integral, Concepts in abstract algebra include cyclic groups, which are groups whose elements are all powers of a particular element can be represented as a So like a to the power of n we you've probably seen a to the power of n somewhere before I know I've seen it I've seen it in power uh, in the power series for example I, specifically I've seen it in I remember seeing it in the derivatives. We're working with derivatives um, When I learned the power rule and that's another example you'd have a to the power of n where k uh, K, the constant, or the really the coefficient, leads the leads the term, and of course the power rule is just the power multiplied by the coefficient, and then of course the variable, the variable x, for example, or a, you would subtract one from its current power. But that's that's derivatives. We'll get in that, into that in a different episode. But anyway, um, there are other Symmetry groups, like there are also things called symmetry groups, which consist of symmetries of given mathematical objects, and then also Glowis groups and other groups. Glowis groups, we'll get into that late in the next episode. Group theory is the theory that studies these abstract algebraic structures known as groups. Group theory sets groups into five separate groups, permutation groups, matrix groups, transformation groups, abstract groups, and groups that hold additional structure. There are a lot of examples of both. The first example, the first type of group is a permutation group. The permutation group, represented by capital G, is a group whose elements are permutations of a set. This is represented by the capital M, the set. And whose group operation, or group, is a composition of the permutations in G. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the total permutations of a group is the total number of different arrangements in the order of the group so think of the matrix it has what is it 43 quintillion permutations so it can be changed into a different basically set into a different structure 43 quintillion times not a symmetry but it can be changed it can be permuted 43 quintillion times permutated and the permutation itself is of course just simply a different arrangement in the order of that group. Matrix group is essentially, the next one we're doing is matrix group, and it is essentially a group of invertible matrices, meaning that the a matrix M multiplied by its inverse matrix, M to the negative first power, or the inverse of M, Equals the identity matrix, a matrix in which the left-right diagonal of elements equal one, and the rest of the elements equal zero. So imagine a two-by-two matrices for example, and you would have on the left, on the left top, you would have a one. On the left bottom, you would have a zero. On the right top, you'd have zero, and on the right bottom, you would have one. So. That's essentially what an identity matrix is. Of course, this applies to more than just a 2x2 two two matrix. It could be a 4x4 four four matrix, a 6x6 six six matrix, a 100 trillion by 100 trillion matrix, etc., etc., etc. Any finite group can be a matrix group known as a linear group for it can be realized through permutation matrices using Cayley's theorem I believe it's Cayley's theorem a theorem stating that every theorem or every group displayed by G is isomorphic meaning that a group is one-to-one corresponded with another group or to another group to a subgroup of the symmetric group acting on the group G we will get into symmetric groups course symmetry groups are interesting the next group is the next group type is the transformation group also known as the automorphism group it's a group that acts on a certain space represented by x preserving its structure Permutation groups and matrix groups are special cases of transformation groups. The space that the permutation transformation group acts on is the set X, whereas the space that the matrix transformation groups act on is the vector space X. Vector spaces, of course, will be discussed later in the next episode. The transformation group is closely related to the symmetry group, and the symmetry group is a group in which the group of all transformation to a geometric object are invariant. So an example and you will see this in if you watch 3 blue run browns video on group theory abstraction and the 196,883 dimensional monster you will see that they defined they define groups specifically through the permutations of the of a snowflake there are 6 different symmetries in a snowflake if you're talking about rotation rotational symmetry the rotational symmetry of course because there are 6 sides to a technically six, like, outward extrusions or whatever to the snowflake, every single rotation of 60 degrees will permute a different permutation, would create a different symmetry. Would It would be symmetrical, it's rotational symmetry. So there'd be six different elements in that set. One of them would be the 60 degree. Uh, Snowflake symmetry, one would be the zero, another one would be 120, 240, 300, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what it is. The next one is the abstract group. As we've seen, many groups in group theory are concrete, meaning that they are proven through matrices, numbers, and permutations. Now, on the other hand, the abstract group is not realized through matrices, numbers, or permutation but rather through axioms, meaning that the abstract group set satisfies a system of axioms. And a lot of a lot of the abstract algebraic concepts still satisfy a certain set of axioms. When we get to the vector space, we will talk about the eight axioms that it satisfies. these These axioms can be associated property, distributive property, Commutative property, uh, in identity, identities, all that. Like additive identities, subtract or uh, not subtractive. That's actually subtraction is inverse addition in algebra. By the way, just to make sure you guys know that. <laughs> um, and then the last one we will discuss, the last structure, technically we will discuss, is just simply the groups that hold additional structure. Some groups in group theory of course hold additional structure that is not necessarily typical of a group. These additional structures include the topological space and the differentiable manifold properties. The topological space is a general mathematical space that allows for the definition of limits, conti- continuity, calculus of course, and connectedness. A group that is a differentiable manifold is a group or anything else that satisfies or anything else in general that satisfies differentiability that is similar enough to a linear space to allow the group or another object to be used to do calculus. Groups like this have more tools available in their studies, so they are more likely to be or more able to be understood than other groups, such as the abstract group. Groups holding additional structure include the Lie group, not the Lie group, the Lie group, which is any group that is also a differentiable manifold. Furthermore, there exist five branches of group theory. There's finite group theory, representation of groups, lie theory, combinatorial group theory, and geometric group theory. The first one is finite group theory. Finite group theory is a theory pertaining to groups that have finite underlying sets. These finite groups arise with mathematical or physical objects and their symmetries, which admit a finite number of transformations or symmetries. An example of this, taken from 3Blue1Brown's Brown, video on group theory and abstraction, is a snowflake, of course, because I, th- it's one that I gave earlier, too. I didn't even realize that. Which, essentially... It is a snowflake. It's the snowflake from Three Blue Run Brown's video, which is represented by the finite group named D6. There exist twelve elements in a group of snowflake symmetries, and thus it has not any infinite symmetries. Finite group theory has been a subject Oh, so apparently there are twelve. Oh yeah, because you can move it backwards. Yeah, that makes sense. Finite group theory has been a subject of great research. For 49 years from 1955 to 2004, mathematicians sought to define all of the simple groups. They did, eventually. In 2004, mathematicians defined a theorem for all finite simple groups. Every finite group is either cyclic, meaning that this group is generated by one element, or it is alternating, meaning that the group is of even permutations in a finite set. If not, it belongs either to an infinite class of groups, known as the groups of lie-type, which are finite groups that hold a structure akin to a manifold, or it is one of the 26 or 27, depending on the classification, exceptions that are known as sporadic groups. The sporadic group has no subgroups, excluding the group itself, and of course the trivial group. This is, of course, the group consisting of a single element, The sporadic groups simply do not follow the same systematic pattern that the defined groups follow. The largest sporadic simple group is what is known as the monster group, because it's massive. It is a very, very, very large group. So, we're going to give you the number, the actual number of permutations in this group, in this set. It is, in this group, in the monster group, represented by the letter M... It has 2 to the 46th, times 3 to the 20th power, 2 to the 46th power, times 3 to the 20th power, times 5 to the 9th power, times 7 to the 6th power, times 121, times 13 to the 3rd power, because I'm not going to do 169 times 13 in my head right now, times 17 times 19 times 23 times 29 times 31 times 41 times 47 times 59 times 71, or around 8 to the 8 times 10 to the 53rd power. That's how many permutations there are in this set. M is visible in not three, not four, but 196,883 dimensions. Keep the number 196,883 in your mind, though, for there seems to exist some significant and mysterious patterns that lie with that number. Monstrous Moonshine is an unexpected connection that occurs between the number of dimensions of the monster, 196,883, and the Q expansion of the J invariant which is a function in modular form. In the j function's q expansion, the function is j to the or j of r, j of r, that's a function, equals q to the negative first power plus 744 plus 196,884 q plus two what is that? 214 or no no 21,493,760 Q squared plus et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, One value one we'll notice is the coefficient 196,884, the third term in the function. This coefficient is merely one of the values from the 196,883 dimensional monster. It is very, very similar to it. It's very close. It's literally only one away. Very close. It seems that this may be a coincidence, but the 196,883 value actually does pop up in this function. In 1978, John McKay found that the first few terms of the Q expansion to the J invariant, he was the one who found these first few terms, and he discovered that the values of the coefficients and constants in the function could be represented through R sub n, which represents the linear combinations of the dimensions of the irreducible representation, or irreducible representations are the non-zero representation that essentially cannot be broken further. Where the second value of the function 196884 could be represented through r sub 1 plus r sub 2, where r sub 1 is 1 and r sub 2 is 196,883, the exact number of dimensions that exist in the monster. There is indeed a connection between the function and the group, for it was discovered that when mathematicians create a vector space that could satisfy the function, they found out that there existed an additional structure known as the vertex operator algebra, which I could honestly not find a mathematical explanation for. Whose autom- automorphism group, a group consisting of automorphism, automorphisms, which are groups that have isomorphisms, or structure-preserving mappings between two structures of the same type, acting upon the same groups is precisely the monster. So, I hope you guys understood that. If not, which I'm assuming you probably have no idea what I'm talking about right now, please just click the links in the description. We have... There is a lot to cover. There is... There are a million links and Wikipedia is a very good source. You just have to think through it. So The thing about Wikipedia is that you really have to think through it. If you give yourself the time to think through it, you'll be fine. The next theory of abstract algebra is the representation of groups. Representation theory studies group structures through the representation of their elements as linear transformations in the vector space. The linear transformations are transformations that occur between two vector spaces that preserves vector addition and scalar multiplication. And I'm assuming that most of you have worked with vector addition in pre-calculus or algebra class, and scalar multiplication is very easy. So let's imagine a .67 if you multiply that by 4, 7, you get 24, 49. And that's that's your point. That's another scalar, essentially. So both of these operations are very straightforward. Representation theory holds importance through applica- applications such as the generalization of Fourier analysis, which is a study of general re- functions represented by the sums of simpler, very simple trigonomic, trigonometric functions via what is known as harmonic analysis, or harmonic analysis, a procedure that allows one to describe and analyze phenomena that have recurrent natures. And this is basically breaking exceptionally difficult function curves into the sum of numerous parts of the curve. Its connection to geometry, I'm sure we all know what geometry is, via invariant theory, a branch of abstract algebra that pertains to the actions of groups on objects, such as vector space, as seen from their effect on the functions in the object. And the representation theory's effects on, in number theory, uh, another effect of representation theory. It, it's also It also has an effect in number theory, which is the study of integers and integer value functions via automorphism and the Laglands problem, a set of conjectures about the connections between number theory and geometry. Let's just hope that I didn't make any grammatical errors there, because I really... This is a very... This is quite... Not the easiest episode to convey to you all. But yeah, anyways, that's essentially representation theory. Representation theory incorporates numerous mathematical phenomena, even to study the same object. These analyses can include methods from module theory, differential geometry, algebraic combinatorics, algebraic geometry, among others. Representation theory studies numerous groups and other algebraic structures, including finite groups, modular groups, unitary groups, lie groups, or lie groups, lie algebras, linear groups, among uh, many others. There exist three notable differences in the representation theories of these groups. Representation theory depends upon which algebraic object is being represented. For example, a group will be represented and studied differently from an algebra, and even more specifically, these several different classes of groups will be studied differently as well. The vector space determines the representation theory of the object, for example, a distinction may be between the structure of vector space, and meaning the Hilbert space or the Banach space, or the distinction may be the type of vector space in and of itself. For example, a vector space may be infinite or finite, and this can determine the representation of this object. And then the third thing is the field above which the vector space is defined alters the representation of an object. The most important distinctions of fields to consider are the differences between the complex field, the real number field, and the finite field. So, of course, we now know that representation theory, basically in its most (laughs) simplistic possible terms, still very not easy, studies group structures through the representation of those elements as vector spaces in the vector space, as transformations in the vector space. And then, of course, there is another group theory, Lie theory. As was defined early, a Lie group represent, represents any group that is also a differentiable manifold, meaning that it has structure that allows it to be used to do differentiable calculus or differential calculus. Lie group theory is a branch of group theory that pertains, unsurprisingly, to Lie groups. I, I'm kind of butchering the word because I haven't really gotten used to it. It's Lie group theory, not Lie. It's probably it probably doesn't matter either way, but it I, from what I've heard, it's Lee theory. Lee theory. Continuous symmetry is an idea that views symmetries as motions instead of symmetries known as discrete symmetries, which are symmetries that are non-continuous. in example: reflection symmetry. Discrete symmetries cannot be continuous. For example, an octagon cannot have continuous symmetry. For its position can be preserved only through rotations that are multiples of 45 degrees. However, Lie groups like the circle group U1 have continuous symmetry, meaning that the motion and the elements in the group continue to hold symmetry. Think about a circle. If you move it 0.001, if you move it an arc second to the side, if you move it an arc second, like rotate an arc second, it's going to be the same thing. If you rotate it a quintillionth of an arc second, it will be the same. That's that That very well explains it. Lie group theory is behind the most developed th- is behind the most developed theory for continuous symmetry allowing for it to be used well beyond abstract algebra. For example, the special tun- special unitary triplet or SU3 is the through Noether's theorem responsible for the law of conservation of color charge and the su- circle group also known as the unitary singlet not really it's U1 is responsible for the conservation of electric charge. Additionally, Lie groups are used in differentiable or differential Galois theory, which studies extensions of differential fields. These are fields that are equipped with derivation or yeah, derivation. The Lie groups are used as natural frameworks to study continuous symmetries in Galois theory. Lie groups as an extension to continuous symmetry groups in Galois theory was one of Lie's paramount goals. So, it's understandable that they are frameworks to study continuous symmetries in Galois theory. And then of course, Galois theory will be discuss- discussed and pertained later in this chapter. Because why not save the most difficult thing for last? We're not even we're not even going to discuss that one in depth because it is exceptionally difficult, way more difficult than group theory. It is actually probably historically one of the most misunderstood theories in all of math and all of science and all of language and all of everything, because every single person in the freaking world did not understand it until the 20th century basically. And Lois when he created that theory when he basically derived that theory, he was 18. he was 18. So to my 18 year old friends out there start learning some math because you gotta come you got be it you gotta get to that. Um, another one is combinatorial group theory. Combinatorial theory is the theory of free groups. A free group is is F sub S over a set S, which consists of all words or the written products of group elements and their inverses that can be built from the members of S. Combinatorial theory also covers what is known as the presentation of a group, or a method of specifying a group in which the group comprises a set of generators. Generators are subsets of groups where every element of the group can be expressed as a combination of those elements in the subset and their inverses, if that made sense, of course. And, of course, we have included a link pertaining combinatorial group theory. If there is not one there because I think I'm going to run out of space for adding stuff, then go on to group theory and down under theories of group theory, theories, sub-theories in group theory, you'll find combinatorial group theory. And also you could just search it up. Then the last one we're going to discuss is geometric group theory. Geometric group theory describes groups in a different way from combinatorial group theory. It basically showcases that groups can be represented in different ways. Geometric group theory attacks problems in group theory, such as the group isomorphism problem, from a geometric perspective, specifically by viewing the groups as geometric objects in and of themselves, or by searching for geometric objects that groups act on. And, of course... That is the rest of group theory. It was certainly a, not an easy topic, no question. Group theory has numerous, if not infinite, applications, both in mathematics and in science, even in music, actually. Um, for example, Galois theory, a theory of abstract algebra, which will be discussed later in this chapter, uses groups to describe the symmetries of roots of a polynomial and why there exists no symmetry pertaining to a simple solution to fifth-degree polynomials, as in no arithmetic basis for a power 5 polynomial. Other applications of group theory in algebra include algebraic topology, algebraic geometry, algebraic number theory, and harmonic analysis. An even more important application of group theory exists in physics, where group theory describes symmetries that the laws of physics are known to obey. Conservation laws exist through Noter's theorem, which establishes that every continuous symmetry of a system must have a corresponding conservation law in that system. Group theory is also used extensively in the standard model, gauge theory, and is the backbone of the Lorentz and Poincari groups. And of course, group theory is used everywhere, including in chemistry and cryptography. But yeah, there is definitely a lot of information on group theory in this episode. So of course, we are going to split abstract algebra into two episodes. You can come back next Saturday and you will see that there will be another episode out on abstract algebra. That one will be a lot more simple than this one. I Personally I thought that the next, that the, this, the next episode, episode 40, will be very easy compared to this. This is exceptionally difficult. Group theory is not easy to understand. You're explaining why one plus one is two by giving the permutations of a group. Like, you're, you're explaining something abstract, you're explaining something very simple that you obviously know is true in a very abstract and proof-based way. That is what makes abstract algebra so difficult. You have the common sense to know that one plus one equals two, but you can't prove it. You just know. You can show people that a pebble and a pebble equals two pebbles, but you need to prove it mathematically. How can you prove it mathematically through pure mathematics, through fundamental mathematics, without using pebbles, or without saying 1 plus 1 equals 2? How do you do that? That is abstract algebra. Group theory had so much information that I could so- I could really not simply make it into a single episode. Next episode will pertain to some, if not all, of the remaining structures in abstract algebra that are to be discussed. It will pertain to all of the ones that we are going to discuss, including ring theory, fields, modules, vector spaces, lattices, algebras, and Galois symmetry. I'm not yet sure whether I will divide this into two or three episodes. I'm now sure that it will be divided into two. But for now, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. There will be a second episode coming out on this next Saturday. If you would like to support the podcast, please click the link in the description of my podcast channel and subscribe to the podcast. But anyway, take care and stay curious.